This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. This is part one of a two-part program. Welcome to Money, Mission, and Meaning, Passion at Work, Purpose at Play, where we explore how we can integrate our personal values and our professional skills to create pleasure and profit in the business of life. I'm your host, Mark Michael Lewis of RationalSpirituality.com, author of Relation Dancing, Consciously Creating What You Really Want in Your Relating, and The Key is in the Darkness, Unlocking the Door to a Spiritual Life. Today's guest is Adam Coots, a meditation teacher and practitioner who's worked with hundreds of individuals and groups to guide them to discover the experience of meditative awareness and to customize a spiritual practice that fits their personality and into their lives. So join us as we explore the power and simplicity of meditation and the profound peace and bliss that comes from learning to rest in awareness and consciousness itself. There's a poem by uh, uh, Leonard Cohen, who was a Zen priest for 20 years, actually. He lived in a monastery. Then he talked about how a, uh, an angel of love or a saint of love has a mind that accords with things the way a runaway ski caresses the landscape of a hill. The mind just sort of rises and falls with the topography of, of any experience. There's a lot in Buddhism where you pop over to the other side and it is kind of magical or mystical. For example, many people avoid pain by playing their PlayStation, by drinking some coffee, getting drunk, watching TV, whatever people do to avoid pain. Well, there's a way in Buddhist uh, meditative practice of drilling through pain. The pain ceases to be suffering. There is such a thing as if a person has a sincere spiritual practice, there's one moment where the mind just pops. The ancient masters have stories like this. I, I think, you know, Emerson was walking down a country lane and all of a sudden he had an epiphany and, you know, he just sat there bathed in glory for hours. And I, I think nothing's ever the same after these experiences or so it goes. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on Money, Mission, and Meaning. It's great to be here, Mark. I've uh, seen the show on the podcast on, on uh, Personal Life Meet, and I've thought, oh, it'd be great to be on the show, so I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Well, so you're a meditation teacher, and I know a lot of people, when they hear about meditation, they think it's some kind of kind of magical, mystical, new age thing with candles and incense, or uh-huh. that it involves like a guru that you give all your money to and wear orange robes around. But so maybe you could help us break it down. What is meditation as you understand it? And why would normal Americans benefit by learning about it and starting a meditation practice? Well, you actually do need candles and incense and a guru and orange robes. So <laughs> that's actually a side point. Uh, to be serious, the way that I teach meditation, I teach it in a traditional Buddhist way. And that is to say that there are basically, as the ancient scriptures state, uh, there's two wings to the bird. There's two wheels to the chariot. There's two main aspects to the path. One is when when a tradi- when a 
And a, a, a Westerner who doesn't meditate might say, oh, meditation, that's chilling out. That's emptying your mind. Well, that's, uh, that's what's traditionally called shamatha or focus practice. The idea there is that you focus the mind on the breath. Another common shamatha practice is a mantra. Focus the mind completely on a mantra. The soles of the feet while walking, uh, staring at the base of a candle. Those are some common shamatha practices. And, and yeah, shamatha is about focusing the mind on a particular uh, part of your experience? That's correct. You divide all of the human experience, all the various thoughts and, and sensations that a human uh, being can have, into two mutually exclusive categories. There's what you're choosing to focus on, and then there's uh, everything else. So watching the breath, if you felt a pain in your knee, unless it was severe, that's something, of course, you'd want to take care of. But if you felt some kind of some, uh, your foot fall asleep or you had a thought about what's for lunch, the idea with shamatha practice is that you let go of that, just let it slide away. There's a, a saying in, in Zen, body and mind drop away. So everything drops away from the pure experience of breathing in and out. The benefit of shamatha practice is that um, a person's mind is tranquilized. It's focused. You know, sometimes people try and read something and they're so emotional. They're like, I just can't read it. I'm just so agitated. So what shamatha does is it calms the choppy waves. It, it enables a mind to be able to be, as the Tibetan Buddhists say, pliable. Uh, it enables you to rest your mind intentionally on something and have the tranquility, peace, and openness. Um, the other uh, wing of the bird in Buddhist meditation, it's called Vipassana, which literally translates into breaking things down into parts and seeing them clearly. So Vipassana is, if you had a pain in the knee, you'd be aware of the exact way that that pain in the knee feels, all the little vibrations of it, all the... I found that a pain in the knee usually consists of um, some really heavy, dull, low-wavelength vibrations, some high-wavelength vibrations. If you really pay attention to it, you notice it's waves of energy. So are our thoughts, so are things that we hear, so are things that we see. So Vipassana is having the awareness, having the consciousness fully accord with exactly um, the various uh, thoughts and, and sensations that a human being can encounter. And the benefit there is that there's a feeling of liberation. There's a feeling of seeing... If you really want to be... The ultimate point of it, if you really want to get to that, it's seeing through the human game and seeing the divinity that is our source shining through. So that, you know, that's an advanced stage in the practice. Usually there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of uh, difficulty and agitation for people to work through first, but slowly there's more of a sense of attuning with the nature of things, uh, seeing through to the heart of reality. Um, it's kind of hard to talk about because it is more of a, you know, ultimately mystical thing. I guess, practically speaking, there's relief from suffering. There's a sense of knowing oneself. There's a sense of opening the heart. Many uh, practical intermediate benefits to mindfulness practice, to Vipassana practice. <laughs> so there's so a there's long answer. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's the nature of the game. I actually appreciate you taking the time to really get into both wings of the bird, or uh, I like sure. both wheels of the chariot. Uh, yeah. It reminds me of the, you know, the idea of you need both both legs to run, and if you specialize in one rather than the other, you end up going in circles. So it sounds like the two different types are one is where you focus on one thing and exclude everything else. Mm-hmm. Or you focus on one thing and allow everything else to just kind of come and go. 
Yep. And then the Vipassana is more about allowing everything to be and to really go into what it is. How How is the Vipassana different than the, uh, and how do you say it? Shamatha. Shamatha. How is it different? Um, well, you could say that, uh, well, I'll give an example with watching the breath, and this is sort of an advanced Buddhist topic, but I'll, I'll lay it out there anyway, which is to say, if you were watching the breath as a meditation, the way to use that meditation as a shamatha meditation would be to just be aware of how many times you're breathing, if you're breathing at all. You wouldn't have to pay so close attention to the actual sensations of breathing. The whole point is just to use the breathing as an anchor to notice when your mind is distracted. So your mind might get caught in um, thinking about lunch, thinking about your career, thinking about a fight you just had. What, you know, you feel a little twinge in your ankle and you wonder, hey, you know, should I pay attention to that? Should I move my posture? There's all sorts of things that would pull a mind away. And the idea with Shamatha is just that the, uh, the breath is an anchor that helps you let go of those distractions gently, you, you know, without pushing, without pulling. It's not skeet shooting. You just notice the mind being pulled away. That's how a lot of people let go of distractions in meditation with a certain violence. That's a common thing for beginners. But, you know, being gentle with oneself, kind of like uh, if you had a kid that was taking candy off the shelf in the store, you just say, hey, put the candy back and, sh- and uh, shepherd the kid along. So you wouldn't actually have to pay that much attention to actual texture of the breath. Whereas the breath can be more of a Vipassana meditation, but what the way that works is you actually feel those subtle feelings of hot and cold coming out through the nose. So the uh, cool, dry air coming in, the warm, moist air coming out. You feel the little feelings of expansion and contraction, pleasure and displeasure. Uh, You know, uh, the tingles, the vibrations of the breath in the pit of the belly. You actually encounter the richness of how it is to respirate in a human body, and you actually feel exactly how that feels. I, there's a poem by, uh, by the, the singer, uh, Leonard Cohen, who was a Zen priest for 20 years, actually. He lived in a monastery uh, after his singing career in the 60s. And he talked about how, a, how a, uh, an angel of love or a saint of love has a mind that accords with things the way a runaway ski caresses the landscape of a hill. And I love that image. It's, it's sort of like the way in Vipassana wow. practice. Yeah. Yeah. The mind just sort of rises and falls with the topography of, of any experience, the thinking, sensations in the body, the way, a, you know, the way a runaway ski might caress a hill. Okay, great, because this is exactly where I thought we would get, and uh, you know, we've, <laughs> we've gotten right there. Because this is weird, right? It is as, weird. As I agree a, with you. As a, you know, a born in California, even though I live in San Francisco, and there's lots of weirdness here, yeah. The, the level of thinking that you're talking about, it, it's, it's kind of like, it's the ground that we walk on. It's, it's the space that we live in, so we don't ever think about this. And it, so I remember when I first heard about meditation, I thought it was some kind of magical, spacey yeah. thing. Yeah. But it sounds like it's really about learning to direct and focus your mind in very precise and consistent and systematic ways. 
And in the process of learning to focus it like that, or learning to actually have it concentrate on one thing for a period of time, that it's like whole new worlds open up for you. Is that? Certainly. You know, I want to address that topic, but there's one more thing I want to say about shamatam vipassana before we move on from that topic, which is many people are familiar with the yin-yang symbol, how um, what that symbol represents is the way different energies, life energies, work together to create a unified whole. And one way of thinking of yin and yang is as masculine and feminine energies. I think that's, you know, one way that it's commonly translated into American thought patterns. And you could say that shamatha kind of represents the masculine side of meditation. It's focused, it's powerful, there's a sense of doing something, letting go of distraction. It's penetrating, it's disciplined, it's grounded, it has boundaries, it says no to distractions. It says no to fun, it creates a container, it's pure stillness. Whereas Vipassana, you could call more the feminine side. It's receptive, it's pure awareness, it's being, it's expansive, it's welcoming, it has open boundaries, it's intimate, it embraces all. It's in tune with the flow and the motion of life. It's delightful. It's more pleasant. So just as masculine and feminine work together to create a a unified um, spiritual whole, so it is a shamatha and vipassana, the masculine and the feminine of meditation work together. I haven't heard any of my teachers uh, give that analysis. That's kind of just something I've come up with on my own. But that's the way it, it, uh, it seems to me. I, I think that's great, and uh, again, I have this vision of the bird with two wings or the chariot yeah, with yeah. two wheels, exactly. and it, the masculine and the feminine, this balance of both kind of focusing and directing your attention to one particular thing and saying no to other things versus kind of opening your attention so that you can allow it all in and feel yep, it into yep. its depths. Yeah, I think okay, the well, two are definitely uh, important to work together. Fantastic. So we're about to take a break to support our sponsors. When we come back, I want to get into how actually learning to focus your mind like this and to open your mind like this and to feel deeper into the, you could say, the texture of the human experience within ourselves um, actually makes a practical difference and a, a, a real shift in how you experience the rest of your life. Absolutely. So, uh, I'm I'm Mark Michael Lewis. I'm speaking with Adam Coots, meditation trainer, I will say extraordinaire, and, uh, <laughs> Thank you. and corporate trainer on money, mission, and meaning, passion at work, purpose at play. And we'll be right back. Listen to Beauty Now, the intersection of cosmetic surgery, longevity, and biomedical innovation for confident decisions in preventative aging on personallifemedia.com. meditation teacher, Adam Coots. So, Adam, I know that uh, we live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of new age thinking and communities out here and, 
you know, you hear about crystals and astrology and spirit guides and manifestation, and, and sometimes people kind of lump meditation in with that world. And I'm curious, how does, how does all of that kind of stuff, uh, the kind of more magical, quote, spiritual stuff, how does that fit in with your understanding of meditation and how you actually live meditation, how it actually impacts your daily life? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a great question. Well, I think part of the problem there is that um, when Buddhism was first translated into the West in the 19th century, they used a lot of Western words. For example, enlightenment. I think um, words like moksha or samadhi are better trans. Uh, that's a Sanskrit and uh, Japanese word, they're sort of better translated as liberation than enlightenment. But enlightenment was a Western word, you know, Voltaire, etc., and that's the word that was used. Similarly, the Western word meditation already means a whole lot of different things. In, uh, in the medieval Christian context, if, I'm, if I understand correctly, the word meditation meant to contemplate something, to hold an idea of Jesus in mind or the way a modern American would use it, maybe, to think about a problem. Whereas I would say the way that really um, uh, Shamatha Bhavana and Vipassana Bhavana, which means Shamatha practice and Vipassana practice, uh, translate, it, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not that sort of intentional cultivation. In, in traditional Buddhist practice, there is a cultivation of loving-kindness, that sort of intentionally generating a sense of love and kindness for yourself. And I know that Tibetans have all... I'm uh, less familiar with Tibetan Buddhism than I am with, with most of the other lineages. They have a lot of um, practices that could be seen as pretty magical. Um, they have a lot of... Uh, they evolved later than the other schools of Buddhism, and so as, as the Indian religious context changed and became more magical, um, that aspect of Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism also co-evolved, and so it's, it's got a lot more rituals, the San Mandala, some people might be familiar with, um, elaborate rituals involving, uh, you know, uh, hypothetical deities, celestial bodhisattvas. So there are aspects of Buddhist uh, consciousness practice that could be seen as um, involving thought, involving intentional cultivation. However, the two schools of Buddhism that I've studied with most, which is Theravada Vipassana Buddhism from Thailand and Burma, and Soto Zen Buddhism from China and Japan. What they more involve is just, as we've talked about, just being with what is, just paying attention to the raw reality of life. And um, there's a way in which it isn't something magical or mystical. It's just sort of, as I said, paying attention to breath, paying attention to body sensations, watching the mind have its thoughts. And the funny thing is, there's a lot in Buddhism where you pop over to the other side, and it is kind of magical or mystical. For example, mo- many people avoid pain by playing their PlayStation, by drinking some coffee, getting drunk, watching TV, getting into an argument, whatever people do to avoid pain. Well, there's a way of, in Buddhist uh, meditative practice of drilling through pain, of feeling a knee pain or an emotional pain so fully that um, the pain ceases to be suffering because it's experienced so fully. And I would say the same thing. By being with the boring reality of being a human being, just feeling how the body feels, just breathing the thoughts, I mean just uh, feeling the breath, just being aware of thoughts as thoughts rather than getting caught in them, there's a way in which you pop through to the other side, and there is something very sparkly and very um, 
almost divine about it. I've had those experiences living in monasteries. And it, it's, it's not like a person is intentionally using crystals or, you know, going to a guru and talking about the absolute or anything like that. It's just a simple awareness, a matter-of-fact awareness of what is. And there's something very alive that happens. And, uh, yeah, like that. Um, there's yeah, some well, poetry that talks about that, about how, you know, before enlightenment, the mountains are mountains and the rivers are rivers, and then a magical thing happens, and then it's just mountains are mountains and rivers and rivers. But something's different. It's hard to say what. Well, it, as you're saying this, you know, I uh, in in my book, Key is in the Darkness, I, I really went through, uh, from my perspective, kind of the lived experience of spirituality and, yeah. and how it actually plays out. And one of the central ideas in the book is uh, the idea of divinity. Yeah, uh, and yeah. the idea of how you relate to divinity. And one of the things I'm hearing in what you're saying is that when you learn kind of the both wings of this bird, when you learn to both focus your attention and mm-hmm. actually um, place it on one aspect of your experience for an extended period of time, and then yeah. at the same time you learn to open your attention so that you can feel into the depth of it, so you can feel its textures and mm-hmm. feel all of its meaning, that... It's sort of like uh, uh, Henry Miller once said that uh, when you look at a blade of grass, when you look at anything deeply, you discover a world of mystery and uh, majesty that's so beautiful because the world itself, each part of it, even a blade of grass, is so rich in experience that it's almost overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm hearing is, you know, you say the, you know, before enlightenment, mountains are mountains. And then after enlightenment, mountains are mountains, except they're different. It's like you're actually experiencing the mountain as a miracle, as something that's so rich that it impacts you, that it inspires you, that it gives you the sense of meaning and participation and bliss. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. I. I, uh, there's a story by the spiritual teacher Ramdas who did a two-month retreat in Burma, a meditation retreat where he was just in a little uh, cube, a little cubicle, or a little, uh, what would you call it, a little room. Hut? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a room in a building, I guess, and they would slide food in uh, to him, and he said he got to know the... I think Ramdas is a pretty extroverted person, which is to say, you know, he gets bored. Um, the more extroverted <laughs> one is... <laughs> Research shows you the more sensation you need, the more you need roller coasters and excitement. And he talked about, he learned in that two months, just sitting in the old room without leaving, that boredom is just a lack of paying attention. And he got to know the cracks on the wall so thoroughly and made friends with the spider and got to know its uh, habits. And he brought a couple bags of peanut M&Ms with him. And traditionally in Buddhist medicine, in Buddhist monastic practice, you don't eat meals after noon. So right before noon, about quarter of noon, he would eat two peanut M&Ms. He figured it out that over two months he could eat two a day, and he said it was such a rich experience. You know, just it was almost too much, just the salt and the peanut and the chocolate. And he, he was back in America a couple months later, and he just shoved a bunch of peanut M&Ms in his mouth, and he just noticed the difference of how paying attention can make such a difference, and how what a rich experience it was just because his mind was right there with it, just paying attention to how it felt to eat. I remember I took, um, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, and in developmental psychology there is um, an analogy, which is to say 
You know, I think more and more research is showing that we're born with personalities, that we definitely have habits of mind, that there's kind of genetic predispositions or pre, uh, prenatal uh, experiences that we have. I mean, I think any mother, any father, actually, for that matter, will know that babies are born with personalities. But that said, it's like we basically do have tabula rasa, blank slate. We kind of are broadly open to experience. And um, what, what this, what in this class, the analogy that was made is our, our habits of thinking and our habits of reacting are kind of like trickles of water on a landscape. But the water keeps flowing that way. You know, we, we, we learn how to pout when our mom doesn't give us what we want. And so it's, you know, anytime someone doesn't give us what we want, we pout. And so that water keeps flowing that way. So by the time we reach adolescence, it's kind of a deep ravine. And it would be pretty hard for the water to flow out of that. And by the time that, you know, we reach adulthood, for some people, their, their personalities are so deeply set. Their ways of thinking are so deeply set. It's like the Grand Canyon. What are the chances that the Colorado River is going to jump out and kind of go somewhere else with the walls of the Grand Canyon on either side? Not likely. So sometimes when people get drunk or people have a near-death experience or people meditate deeply or have a therapy session, there's things in life that, you know, or they read a great work of literature. There's things in life that give us what, you know, what the psychologist Abraham Maslow called a peak experience. And all of a sudden we see things differently. All of a sudden the water jumps out from its river valley and it flows a different way. Oh, I can see people in a new way. I can see myself in a new way. Maybe I could change careers. You know, maybe I could love people more. Maybe, you know, I could, maybe I could just go and travel right now. I think um, the, the problem is that then, whether it's um, just neurobiology or whether it's you just want to say it's just our habits of mind, the mind goes back to thinking the same way. You know, a lot of times that, that brief experience of seeing things in a new way, which we've all had, fade. I think the idea with meditation is to gradually lift up the the uh, the elevation of some of these riverbeds so that the water can flow in new ways. So it doesn't always flow the exact same way. We don't react to people the same way. We don't see life the same way. We don't get through just the same way we started getting through when we were 12 or 13. And that actually real change is possible. Real new perception is possible. Um, that the water isn't stuck flowing the same way it's always flowed. Oh, excellent! Uh, that that <laughs> right to my that brings me right to my next question, uh, right. and it's really about the nature of practice, and you could say the goal or the path to enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, I want to take another quick break. Right. And uh, so I'm Mark Michael Lewis with Money, Mission, and Meaning, and we're speaking with Adam Coots, meditation teacher, and we'll be right back. Listen to Coaching the Life Coach, business and marketing strategies for growth of transformational practices with Jason McLean, your guide in the 21st century marketplace on personallifemedia.com. on Money, Mission, and Meaning with meditation teacher Adam Coots. Now, Adam, you were talking about how uh, you mentioned what you might call a peak experience, or Maslow called mm-hmm. a peak experience. And I know Ken Wilber 
someone who were both uh, very uh, respectful of his work. Um, yeah. He sometimes calls it a peak experience, as in P-E-E-K. Yeah, so it's like you're peeking that. into something. And uh, when you have that peak experience, it can change how you see things, but then you tend to go back into your old ways of thinking. And you, you know, in this riverbed, you're talking about having a meditation practice that lifts the river. And I want to focus on that word practice for a little bit because yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's something about uh, a spiritual practice which is different than uh, kind of a one-time experience in which everything fundamentally changes. There's, yeah. there's something yeah. about learning to build a new relationship with your experience. And I was hoping you could just uh, talk a little bit about what a practice is and why they call it a spiritual practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I, some, some people might be familiar with, uh, in Buddhism, what's called the Eightfold Path, which is sort of the, uh, the manual for how, for how to practice, how to walk the road of liberation. And one of them is right action. Um, Samya Kamanta is, I think, the way it's said in Sanskrit. And what right action is, there's all sorts of parts to it. It's basically the idea is if you know th- something's good in your life and you, uh, and you're doing it, keep doing it. If you know something is really the healthy, good thing to do and you're not doing it, start doing it. If you know something's bad for you and you're doing it, stop doing it. And if you know something's bad for you, and bad for your relationships, bad for your communities, bad for your health, and you're not doing it, keep not doing it. So that's, that's a simple... That sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah, it is. But I, I, I find inspiration in that. I find looking at it like, whoa, yeah, you know, where, what am I doing that I... It's good to keep doing, keep not doing. What could I do differently? Anyway, and you know, the, the Buddha did get specific about all sorts of things uh, vis-a-vis right action. And one thing was, you know, do your meditation practice. So, in the Buddhist context, the idea is to be regular with one's practice, to uh, to sit regularly. I uh, I think that it, you know, you you mentioned why is it called practice and. Many times when I teach my meditation class, I have an eight-week class that, I, that I, uh, I've taught for a few years now. Many times on week two, people come in, they say, oh, this meditation is so great. You know, I'm doing the practice of the, of the Dalai Lama, the practice of the ancient masters. This is so great. I, I had so much bliss this week. I, I'm going to do this forever. I, I can't believe it's taken me so long to find this practice. This is so wonderful. I, I just had light energy shooting up my spine and out of the top of my head and... I say to them, I'm sorry, <laughs> because what inevitably happens is in the upcoming weeks, they hit, a, you know, uh, as in the metaphor of one spiritual teacher, you, you dig in a, in a garden and the first few layers is just soft, loamy soil, and then you hit a hard rock. And eventually you'll hit everything you've avoided in life, and you'll hit um, your boredom, you'll hit your anger, you'll hit the parts of yourself you don't feel so good about, you might hit some childhood trauma, you might hit that conversation last week where you yelled at your friend and... You know, all of that stuff, any psychological weak point or point of that hasn't been resolved will eventually percolate to the surface in meditation. And that's when it really becomes a practice. It becomes a practice of really embracing those things, loving them, opening to them, being willing to feel them, being willing to sit in the fire and burn sometimes in the, in the service of purifying oneself. Kind of like in a washing machine, um, you know, you, the water gets dirty, and that means your clothes are getting cleaner, but the water is definitely getting dirty. And so it is in meditation that all sorts of uh, difficult, difficult creatures crawl out of the sewer. 
and that's a good sign. It's a sign of progress, but it definitely takes um, a certain amount of um, stability, a certain amount of dedication, a certain amount of being willing to get on the, you know, like an athlete get, wakes up in the morning, does their crunches, does their sprints, you know, whether they feel like it or not, because they know that that training is going to change them into the person they want to be. So it is in meditation, keeping our focus practice, keeping our mindfulness practice, coming back to being aware of, creating space for, and uh, being willing to open to exactly what our experience is again and again. It often takes quite a sense of practice and discipline. So, like that. And, you know, it, it sounds, quite frankly, it just sounds like a lot of work. And And I think... I think when people really get into it, they realize that it is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a particular kind of work. It's a yeah. work that's not necessarily physically difficult, although uh, depending on the practice you're doing, you can certainly mm-hmm. um, challenge your body. But there's a particular kind of mental focus that's required of it. And I, I know for myself, it, it, it's like working out mental muscles that when you go to the gym and you haven't been to the gym for a while, you, you do some activity, and the next day you realize, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know I had muscles that yeah. could get sore there. And I, I often experience that, you know, as I go deeper into my own practice. It's amazing how many different levels, and it, it seems like there's just an infinite amount of levels where you realize, oh, my gosh, I... I've been loose here. My mind has been really loose here. And now that I'm actually trying to focus it or now that I'm actually trying to be with this experience, I just notice how my mind just runs anywhere else. Absolutely. And 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 that brings up, you were talking about how the word enlightenment isn't necessarily the best translation of mm-hmm. these, uh, these experiences. And, you know, sometimes I think people approach meditation and enlightenment as, okay, so you meditate for a while, and then you become enlightened. Yep. Then you yep. become liberated, and then you're done. Right? Yep. It's over. I mean, hey, game over. You won. And yeah. Yeah. so I, I, I thought um, that I'd ask you, you know, a really simple question, which is, uh, I say that smiling, you know, yeah. in yeah. your experience, what is enlightenment? What is liberation? What is the nature of that such that people can understand why moving towards that can actually lead to a much deeper and richer experience of life? Yeah, you said a lot there. Um, I'd love to talk about um, about the nature of practice, the simile of lifting weights, but I uh, to, to deal first with, with the last thing that you brought up about enlightenment, I one of the first Zen masters to bring Zen to America was a guy named Philip Kaplu, who founded the Rochester Zen Center. And he wrote two seminal classic books of American Buddhism, uh, The Three Pillars of Zen and Zen East and West. And in those books, he, t- he has a number of Satori stories of, of his, by his students. And, which and, are, and what is Satori? Satori is a Japanese word that means basically liberation or enlightenment. Basically, what happens is, you know, you focus on your practice. In, in his school, Rinzai Zen, a lot of times it's, it's working with these paradoxical stories called koans, or meditating on the breath. And so the students do so sincerely, deeply for years. They're sitting there on retreats or at home, 
you know, while they, even while they go about their daily business. Um, and then one day their mind just pops. And, the, you know, so in, the, in these stories, in these books, the students laugh or all of a sudden they feel a, a weight thrown off their shoulders and everything becomes clear. They feel in harmony with the universe. They, uh, they feel more of an open heart with the people around them. Life stresses them out less. They feel maybe a sense of energization. They feel a sense of everything makes sense. They feel a sense maybe, this isn't a very Buddhist way of putting it, but divinity shining through all things. And so I, I believe that such things happen, that there is such a thing as if a person has um, a sincere spiritual practice, that there's, there's one moment where the mind just pops. The ancient masters have stories like this. I, I think, you know, Emerson was walking down a country lane and all of a sudden he had an epiphany and you know he just sat there bathed in glory for hours and i i think nothing's ever the same after these experiences or so it goes it's not like a person just sits there as a vegetable i mean the buddha meditated daily after he was liberated and he might have been the most liberated person that's ever lived according to certain philosophy ways of looking at things but you know he he practiced after he was liberated but nonetheless after he stood under the bow tree and had his, his enlightenment experience, nothing was ever the same. On the other hand, there's another school of Zen, which is the San Francisco Zen School, Zen Center's lineage, which is Soto Zen. And the, uh, the teachers in that lineage, they more talk about enlightenment isn't a goal. It's not some place you'll get to. Just every day, doing your practice, meditating, sitting on your cushion, being with what is, uh, what the Hindus call karma yoga, being a good person, you know, uh, instead of uh, yelling at people at work or if someone cuts you off in traffic, doing your best to be constructive about the situation and communicate responsibly. You know, all those practices are enlightenment itself. You're not trying to get somewhere. Just in the moment, giving your best, um, that, that is the experience of enlightenment. And every day, you know, if a person is sincerely walking their spiritual path, they'll have moments that feel like, ah, yes, this is it. And the teachers in the Soto Zen lineage say, that's it. That's it right there. It's not like a bucket of water gets thrown on you and you're suddenly wet. It's like walking in a fog. Slowly, little by little, you don't even realize how wet you've gotten until you're soaked to the bone. And you look back on 20, 30 years of practice and you say to yourself, wow, I, I'm a clearer being. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really different being. I, I'm able to understand people better. I'm able to understand myself better. I, I live in this world, and yet I'm not of it. There's something kind of, there's some sort of, I feel the spiritual source shining through all things. And um, it's, you know, those are two different views of liberation, of enlightenment, and um, I think that they both have some validity. Okay, well, so let's take that even one step further, yeah. which is in, in your own practice and in your yeah. own experience and your own access to what you yeah. understand kind of is is possible as your mind can both focus and feel the texture of your experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's this idea that, um, I don't know, what's the old joke, you know, the uh, Buddhist who goes to the hot dog vendor and says, make me one with everything. Right? And the hot dog... And then he asks for change, and the hot dog vendor says, change must well, come from within. <laughs> yes, so exactly. get me started on stupid Buddhist jokes. <laughs> we'll talk about nothing yeah. else. Anyway, okay, go, on. go on. Well, so in this idea, there's this 
uh, experience of uh, enlightenment, whether it's you know getting soaked to the bone simply by getting wet through all of these, all of these years, yeah, and yeah. that there's something about that that seems to point to the same kind of experience that let's say a, a Christian or a Muslim might experience when they point to um, kind of being one with God or yeah. this yeah. God type of experience. And I, w- I was wondering if you could speak a little bit from, you know, from as much experiential uh, insight as you can actually put into mm-hmm. words. What is this connection between uh, enlightenment or satori and this thing that sometimes we refer to as God or divinity? Jeez, dude. <laughs> I know, I'm going all the way. Cause you are going all the way. Well, yeah, I think I'm venturing off the reservation with my answer here. I, Yeah, this is a great topic. Um, I think that I think that Buddhism often does not use the word God. There's there's various words in Buddhism that I would say translate pretty well to the to the Western word God. And there are certain teachers, like there's a really amazing teacher. If he's, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was teaching over the age of a hundred. He's four ten, tough as hell. Um, a Japanese named Joshua Sasaki Roshi. He had a temple in rural L.A. County called Mount Baldy, and he uses the word God a lot. And uh, it's interesting to study his teachings because he does a bridge between, I would say, traditional Buddhist teaching and Western theism. I would put it this way, and I'm not, I'm not trying to represent Buddhism here. I'm just, this is my own opinion and, as you say, my own experience. Um, I think that divinity is beyond the human mind's comprehension. Immanuel Kant talked a lot about that. There, there's, that our spiritual source, the, the, the divinity from which all the, the manifest universe the, the the trees, the the buildings, all the people, all the bugs, all the stars, the whole universe sprang forth from a divine source. And that divine source is neither male nor female, it neither exists nor doesn't exist. It it's it's neither good nor bad. There's nothing that we can really say about it because our minds are too feeble to understand. That's what Kant wrote. And I agree with that. However, um there's a way in which we can get hints of it. The more we're aware of our subjectivity, the more the objective truth of, of divinity can shine forth out of things. There's a way in which the, the Buddhists talk about Vipassana practice. They say, if you can notice all your body sensations, you can notice all your thoughts, you can notice all your visual experiences, seeing, you can notice your, your hearing, you can just pick apart all those vibrations. And, you know, as we said, have the mind accord with the exact vibration, like a runaway ski caressing a hill. If you can feel... The, the vibrations of thought, if you can really feel the vibrations of, of uh, you know, the pains in your knee, the pain in your back while you're sitting there in meditation, or even as you're walking down the street, you can just notice what, where your mind goes. You can notice how you're distracted by the new pair of shoes in the window. You can just notice the topography of being human. If you can really see that, something subtle starts shining through the cracks between your experience. Whereas formerly being human was this big, solid experience. I'm human. I have this much money in my bank account. I'm at war with this ex-friend of mine who doesn't understand me. If you can really notice clearly all the aspects of being human, some light starts to shine. And you could, you know, I think you could say that light is divinity. The, the Buddhists don't use that word. They would call it impermanence or no self. Or, and I think that that's, that's part of the tricky part. You know, spiritual practice takes you to the far shore, and it's really hard to describe that far shore. 
some Western monotheists and Hindu saints describe it in the positive, the, you know, being full of God, being full of um, some experience. And, you know, some people describe it in the negative, um, absolute emptiness, absolute pure consciousness. And I think the words don't really matter. What matters is having a spiritual practice that has a person experience it for themselves. And then there's, you know, when a person comes back, they'll say, hey, I met Jesus. You know, hey, a Marxist might say, hey, I, I you know, I, I realized the uh, telos of history, you know, in a, in a breath or something. I don't know. People will have absolutely different words for what it is that they encounter there. I felt the Tao. I felt the goddess. I, I uh, you know, I, I met an angel. It doesn't really matter the words. The, the, the bottom line is have a, a sincere practice that... Uh, that will take one on that journey. Thank you, and uh, I'll say that that's just incredibly well said. Um, I'm really enjoying myself. I'd like to continue this into another show. Are you up for that? Absolutely. I'm your host, Mark Michael Lewis, of Money, Mission, and Meaning, Passionate Work, Purpose of Play. And join us again next week as we continue this conversation with Adam Coots, meditation teacher, and explore how we can use the power and the profound simplicity of our mind and the awareness behind our mind to create pleasure and profit in the business of life. For uh, text and transcripts of this show, go to moneymissionmeaning.com, just all one word, moneymissionmeaning.com. And for other great shows on the Personal Life Media Network, please visit our website at www.personallifemedia.com. Talk to you next week. This concludes part one. The interview will be continued in the next episode of this show. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com. <laughs>